across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, how was it for you then? The first proper weekend of the new national lockdown. No driving, no walking, no cycling, no talking, no hugging, no eating, no drinking, no mingling, no shopping, no holiday, no loitering and absolutely no dissenting. Not from the truth, obviously, because if you do that, then you must be the most awful, ghastly, horrible individual. You must want everybody to die. But at least we're safe in the knowledge that all the things that are being denied to us are worth it in the long run because the lockdown plan seems to be finally working. I mean, only about 3,000 people died over the weekend, right? So, Mr Chris Whitty, uh, I'm afraid your plan does not exactly seem uh, to be following through. This morning we awaited the news that the apparently draconian lockdown measures might actually be tightened. Not quite sure how, by the way. We've got Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty all over the TV telling us to stay at home. And the philanderer-in-chief Neil Ferguson reckons that London might already have herd immunity to COVID, or it will have it soon. Now, hang on a minute. All of the people that we've spoken to on this radio station, and we are often accused of being COVID deniers, which of course is absolutely and utterly incorrect, uh, apparently if we said herd immunity could be achievable because other people would actually get the virus, that was described as blood on your hands. That was described as something terrible. That was described as the kind of talk uh, that was dangerous, the kind of talk that made lives die. Well, I'm sorry, Neil Ferguson is still an advisor to the government. He might have left Sage, but he's now in nerve tag and he's a bloke uh, who influences very heavily the policies of Boris Johnson, Matt Hancock and Chris Whitty. So if Neil Ferguson says that London has got herd immunity as a result because of many people getting infected, how is he wrong or is he right? Let's find out. Parliament will debate today whether it's necessary to appoint a Minister of Hospitality. That's not someone to enjoy it, but someone to fix what's wrong with it. After all, an awful lot of restaurateurs and uh, bar owners and pub owners are very, very nervous about how long this is going to go on for. We shall seek the sage counsel of John Rental to kick off the show from The Independent. 0344 499 Coming up, we'll be joined by Mail on Sunday columnist Peter Hitchens to discuss the strange developments over the last few days on social media. Disappearing followers by the hundreds, censorship and the route out of here. I might mention a report from Canada as well in which an esteemed doctor has said that lockdowns are far more damaging than we first thought. 0344 499 1000. We'll also check in with virologist Simon Clark with what he makes of the latest stats and we'll be wishing good riddance to Meghan and Harry who have vowed to leave social media because it's too horrible. Mind you, if they leave social media the same way they left uh, public uh, office, I dare say we'll still be hearing from them uh, a year from now. But otherwise, let's just say hurrah! Good riddance to both of you. Planks, Duke and Duchess of Netflix, be gone. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, without further ado, time to say a very good morning to Mr John Rentoul, Chief Political Commentator from The Independent. John, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I thought you were introducing me as uh, from Independent Sage. Uh, <laughs> well, I may be say I may be from the Independent, but I'm not from Independent Sage, and I'm not from the 
what what does SAGE actually stand for? I've forgotten. Uh, scientific Sci advisory, scientific group, advisory emergency. group of the emergency whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, in times uh, in the future, you'll probably be very happy that you were never associated with such an outrageously uh, wrong gang of people because, uh, you know, here we are. <laughs> here we are following the science, right? And the science is taking us all over the place. Now we finally get Neil Ferguson at the weekend telling us actually uh, that herd immunity may have already been achieved in London. Um, because so many people have actually got the disease. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I'm not sure he said that. I think He, he did said say exactly third, that to the Sunday Times. Third of, a third of people might have had uh, coronavirus in London. Well, that's, that's, not, that's not herd immunity yet, by any means. No, but, but it does. Was, would you like me to read you the quote? Go on. That may be slightly aided by the fact that there is quite a lot of herd immunity in places like London. Maybe 25% or 30% of the population has now been infected in the first wave and the second wave. So that adds to the reduction of transmission. That's his direct quote. Right. Yeah, but that's not herd immunity, is it? I mean, that, that just means there's an element of, of, of herd immunity. And it means that it might be easier to achieve herd, herd immunity through vaccination. So that's, that's a... That's a good well, thing. Well, I mean, I think the point is, is that you and I both know, John, as much as we've now learnt, as we did during Brexit, about international trade, we've now learnt an awful lot about virology. I get accused all the time of not being a scientist. People say to me, well, what do you know about it? Well, I've been doing it day in, day out for the, about the best part of the last 400 bloody days. That's why I know about it. And here's the point. Um, herd immunity can be achieved by two things. One, vaccinations and two, infections. And they don't yet yes. know how long those infections keep you immune. However, you have to say, you can't say on the one hand, oh, look, we've got one in 20 people infected, as Sadiq Khan said at the weekend. Um, and that has no effect on herd immunity because it does. No, absolutely. And that's, uh, you know, that does mean that uh, the vaccination programme should work more quickly than uh, than it otherwise would, which is uh, which is a good thing. But it's interesting that you're blaming the scientists and blaming the politicians for having followed scientific advice. No, no, I'm not blaming, no, I'm not blaming anyone. I didn't blame anyone for anything. All I said is, is that they're following the science and it's leading them all over the place because it keeps changing. Yeah, but that's interesting because it's different from what the common criticism of, of, of Boris Johnson is that he's been too slow to follow the scientific advice. Uh, so th this, this is obviously going to be the big question for the public inquiry whenever it comes in about uh, 2055, I should think. Um, <laughs> well, what, no, year after year after we stop the lockdowns, <laughs> <laughs> to establish whether uh, whether the Boris Johnson's defence is that he he followed the science, or uh, you know uh, whether the scientists got it wrong. Uh, or whether the politicians got it wrong by not following yes. the science. I mean, I think there's no question that there is still quite a bit of resistance within Downing Street of uh, those who want more lockdowns faster and those like Boris who would rather not do it, as every time he gets up and makes a speech that he doesn't want to make, um, he's kind of, it feels like he's been forced into it by events, isn't it? Well, that's right. And, and by the majority uh, in the cabinet, led by... Uh, Michael Gove, which is quite surprising, mm. and uh, Matt Hancock. Um, but Rishi Sunak seems to have uh, fallen silent. He was the leader of the keep the economy open. Yes. Uh, fact. He, uh, he seems to have uh, kept his uh, kept his counsel recently. Well, you know what's interesting, and you will have read this as I did, you may have even written it over the course of the weekend, that so-called lockdown sceptics, of, of which we would count Rishi Sunak as one, have had to kind of go a little bit quiet because the numbers are so large that we're now seeing yeah. in hospitals and in uh, in the death rates that, you know, it's a bit difficult to argue that, you know, 
this is not a big problem. There's clearly a very big problem here. But this, I would still argue, as a lockdown sceptic, which I count myself as, um, that, you know, is it still too much uh, too soon? Are we doing uh, too much to kill off the economy? Because in my view, um, I know we've only been in this for a week. It's not really working as yet. You know, 3,000 people died over the weekend. That doesn't sound to me uh, like we've, you know, somehow got a grip of the virus and we're told that it's out of control. Well, yeah, but the, what's the alternative, Mike? I mean, that's the question. I mean, it may not be working uh, absolutely, but the alternative may be worse. Well, it may um, be, so, but, it, but, it, but it also may not be worse in, te- in terms of what is going on in the rest of the community where people are trying to, you know, get medical help for various problems that they've got. I was I was sent a story by a listener over the weekend um, about a family member who died, went into hospital, had 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 lung problems anyway, emphysema and that kind of thing, went into hospital without COVID, was tested negative on, on the first instance, was then put in a COVID ward by accident, caught COVID yeah. and then died. You know, yeah. so there are lots of things that are not working well and lots of things and lots of people who are being affected badly um, by, yes. by this lockdown. Yeah, but most of those things are not going to be helped by having more coronavirus cases uh, around rather than rather than fewer. So uh, I, I do think the two important things that have changed are the new variant, uh, which is which is more infectious. Yes. I think that that has changed a lot of people's minds, uh, but also the vaccines uh, being approved, which means that, you know, lock locking down the economy is it makes more sense if you can see the end point where where you can lift the restrictions uh, rather than just locking down yes. as an open end. And I think that an and I think that should be the next type of uh, of conversation that we start to have as to when uh, we see some kind of target being set because it doesn't appear to be a target being set in terms of the lockdown. There's targets being set about two million vaccines a week. There's targets being set about how to try and reduce the R number, but they don't say at what point and when and when when they vaccinated enough people, we'll start to be able to lift some of this. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think there is a danger that uh, what happened last time in the summer um, last year might happen again, which is that the government starts moving the goalposts yeah. because the original aim of, uh, of locking down and the restrictions was to delay and reduce the number of infections. But as soon as the curve started coming down steeply, uh, the objective switched without anybody saying so to trying to suppress the virus altogether and trying mm. to eliminate it, which was, uh, which was a fool's errand. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And meanwhile, we, we enter another week. Parliament technically back today. I'm told there's some kind of a, a, a debate. We'll talk about it later on uh, in the show on hospitality, whether uh, uh, there's been a petition filed, I think, where uh, some members of the hospitality um, business have asked for a minister to be appointed. Do you think there's any likelihood of that? No, nope. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't see the point of it. But I mean, you know, you're you, you rather glib about it, John. But in the end, there's millions of people whose lives depend on hospitality, millions and billions of pounds of money uh, paid into the exchequer from tax. You know, we can't go on like this, just going, oh, don't worry about it. Uh, you'll just have to figure something out. No, but there is a minister for that. There's the Chancellor of the Exchequer, he's called, mm. uh, Rishi Sunak. And he, you know, I think he's very conscious of the fate of the uh, hospitality industry. I mean, he was responsible for Eat Out to Help Out yeah. and he criticised uh, quite quite a lot for that. Uh, but he's he's very well aware of the of the danger to to people's jobs and, and livelihoods. And uh, I think he's you know, he's the, he's the minister we should look to. I mean, I think I think gimmicks like appointing a, a separate minister for hospitality are, are, are just distractions. Well, you, what about the gimmick of appointing a separate minister for vaccinations then? 
well, I think that's a distraction too. Right. Well, I'm glad to see that you're consistent, John. I'm glad to see that here we are <laughs> once again agreeing on things. Now, what about this uh, Allegra Stratton and the uh, the mysterious um, television studio? Because I happen to know that there was a television studio constructed. There were people hired to start today with the first ever kind of, you know, White House style briefing. And it's all been chucked yeah. under a bus because apparently they don't want to do it until after the pandemic. What's going on? Well, I mean, the, 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 the reason given is that, that, you know, ministers are doing so many of these uh, press conferences. Matt Hancock and the prime minister are appearing uh, pretty much, you know, like three times a week or something like that. So yeah. there's no need for uh, a separate uh, a separate spokesperson to appear on the prime minister's behalf. But mm. I suspect there is an element of second thoughts about whether this really is a good idea mm. to have a high profile uh, person. Uh, speak for the prime minister on television, become a personality in her own right. Yes. And thereby acquire a huge amount of power in government because information is power. Yeah. Uh, and and speaking for the government is a very powerful position. Yeah, well, if you look back on all the people who were in that position before, in a in a sort of a less visible way, in a way, because we never really were yeah. able to watch the Alistair Campbell press briefings, but but you'll remember those, I'm sure, very well. You know, I'm amazed actually they found anyone to do the job because if I was a leg of Stratton, the last thing I'd want to do is get up every day and try and defend Boris Johnson. Well, it will make her <laughs> one of the most famous people in the country. Yeah, I mean, you can see you can see the attraction. I mean, whether whether it's possible to do that job well or whether whether it is a poison chalice mm. is something that they're obviously they may well be having second thoughts about now yeah um i wonder if we'll ever see um a, a sort of daily briefing on on camera right. uh, from a prime minister spokesperson right. uh, you know, i mean that the, all these the, there's a sort of boring briefing that goes on every day when parliament's sitting uh, which people don't see because it happens. Uh, it happens on the telephone at the moment. It used to happen in a in a room in right. uh, in Westminster, another room in in Downing Street, which is just going through the sort of business of the day and 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 so on. Uh, but that kind of stuff put on television. Uh, mostly has downside possibilities mm. for the government, I, I would have thought. Well, that's what I think as well. What does she do at the moment, Allegra Stratton? I mean, does she have a? She doesn't really have a briefing on a daily basis at the moment, does she? She does take part in the in the in the daily briefings uh, quite often. Yes, um, not not every day, but but quite often. Right, but I mean, she's she hasn't sort of taken over um, on mass, has she? No, she usually does it with a with a civil service uh, uh, spokesperson mm. as as well as a, as a sort of double act. Right, um, and she's she's very good at it. It's a very straightforward uh, job, but I think doing that that kind of job on camera in public is, is is a very different kind of job. Mm. And I think that that can only lead to trouble for the government. And uh, I think they're beginning to realise that. Yes, I think that's probably true. Uh, plus, you know, they haven't U-turned on anything for a couple of days, so probably might as well <laughs> do that, start the week off as you mean to continue. What about uh, <laughs> old Sir Keir Starmer? He's making a speech today, we believe, just after 11 o'clock. Um, something that is becoming quite an interesting debate is the business of the elections, isn't it, in May, as to whether um, some people like Sadiq Khan want them to go ahead, others like yeah. the government perhaps don't well is that is that how it works i'm not i'm not sure i, was, I think i think most people ought to wait and see i mean i think it's sensible to make uh, contingency plans for for postponing it but you know we just don't know what it's going to look like i mean you know if the vaccination program is rolled out as fast as it possibly could be uh I, you know there's no reason why why we shouldn't be seeing the restrictions lifted 
um, you know, by the end of March, mm. um, and in which case, you know, May elections should be should be fine. I mean, yeah. after all, they had they had presidential elections in America, um, you know, in the middle of a of, of a pandemic. It shouldn't be possible. It shouldn't be impossible. Yeah, but that was all hijacked by the, the uh, by the by the by the mail in ballots, wasn't it? <laughs> Well, yeah, but I mean, we we have we have fairly liberal postal postal yeah, voting rules. No, I, listen, I'm I'm very much in favour of the elections going ahead. The the only reason I said what I said is I've heard arguments over the weekend um, from people like um, Sadiq Khan who thinks that obviously he's quite popular at the moment in terms of yeah. uh, the way things are going, um, and he might be less popular once the pandemic's over. In the sense that people will look back and go, well, hang on a minute, is that sure? Are you sure you did the right thing? Whereas for the government, it's kind of the other way around. They'll be more popular once the pandemic's over than they are now. Yeah, well, that's that's why I think you know it, it all depends on whether the, uh, the 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 pandemic appears to be under control by. Yes. By, but I mean, I I agree with you. I think I think it is very very important. I don't think the election should have been postponed last year. No. I think very very important that democracy continues, and I think it's an outrage that. Uh, that Sadiq Khan has been the unelected mayor of London for a year, yeah, um, and the same the same goes for for Andy Burnham in in, in Manchester, uh, and the and the Scottish government did Scotland. I yeah. think, uh, except I can't remember if that were, were the Scottish elections postponed. Anyway, the, uh, it's a bad no. I don't idea think no. I think no. I think they were scheduled to happen in May of this year. That's right. I think we should uh, we should uh, bust a gut to make sure that they happen uh, happen this time and then they're not postponed again. Yes, no, I think that's absolutely right. Um, so Starmer today, what's he going to be talking about? Um, it's a boring speech about the economy, Mike. Um, oh, great. He said all the stuff uh, yesterday when he was uh, when he was interviewed by Andrew Marr on the BBC. He said said some very interesting things about Europe. Mm. Uh, and if there are questions after his economy speech today they will all be about europe i can guarantee that because, uh, because he's now he said, because he's now said there's no point in rejoining right well he said he doesn't he doesn't think there's a case for rejoining the eu which is an extraordinary thing for for, for the former shadow brexit secretary to say uh, the architect of labor's policy of uh, uh, of going to the election arguing that there should be a, a, another referendum mm. in which he would argue very strongly that there was a case for staying in the eu um, it's a bit difficult for him to argue now, I think, that there is no case for, for joining. Yeah, but I mean, he's, he could... he's been all over the place on this, hasn't he? I mean, he was basically responsible for Brexit policy at the Labour Party in the last election, which was a disaster, you know, because he kept yeah. saying to the people in Leave constituencies, oh, yes, uh, quite right, we should definitely leave. And then to the people in the Remainer constituencies, oh, yeah, we should definitely uh, stay in. Yes, but now he's upset the Remainers <laughs> by saying by saying he doesn't, he doesn't want to rejoin. Um which, which is different, which is very, very difficult because everybody knows that, of course, you know, all other things being equal, he would want to rejoin. He yeah. thinks it would be better for us to be in the in the EU. So, who's, so who's he playing to? Is he playing to those red wall seats then? Yes, um, I, I think he is. And I, but I think he's also playing to a a view among the sort of centre ground of the electorate who may well have voted remain mm. uh, that the issue has been settled and that the referendum uh, has to be respected, and that 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 means you can't you can't sort of turn round, you know, a few days after we've actually finally completed uh, Brexit with the EU trade deal, uh, and say right, well, it's time for us to talk about rejoining. Yeah, I mean, but the way he the way he put it was uh, was inelegant mm. uh, and and designed to provoke 
quite a lot of Remainers in his own party. Yes. I think the problem for Keir Starmer is whenever he makes any kind of uh, absolute decision and releases what he believes to be their new policy, he has a problem because the Labour Party is completely and utterly riven um, by people who have completely and utterly opposing views about almost everything. <laughs> now, I think it's more fundamental than that, actually, Mike. I think it's like Neil Kinnock, who fought one election uh, committed to unilateral disarmament, mm. Uh, you know, giving up our nuclear weapons regardless of what other countries yeah. did, uh, and then tried to fight another election on the opposite policy yeah. of he was going to keep our nuclear weapons and would be prepared <laughs> to use them as prime minister if necessary. Right. Uh, which I think the electorate has difficulty coming to terms with, and I think the same problem of I mean, you know, membership of the EU is a fundamental uh, political principle. Yeah. Either you it's a good idea or a bad idea, right. and we know what Kim Summer thinks. Right. And he can't go around saying, "Oh, well, I." You know, I've changed my mind. He just has to say, well, it's not an issue for now. Yeah. But what happened to all those people who said that, you know, when circumstances change, you change your mind? What happened to those people? Well, yeah, well, circumstances have changed in that we've left the yeah. EU. And, you know, um, there doesn't seem to be much point in immediately trying to reverse that decision. Mm. But it's impossible for Keir Starmer to say that, you know, he now thinks that um, he was wrong. And that, uh, you know, being outside the EU is better for Britain. Mm. I mean, he, he can't he can't say that. And, you know, this is going to be a problem that's going to dog him uh, between now and polling day yeah. uh, when it comes. I think you're absolutely right. John, pleasure as ever. Thank you very much indeed. John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. Uh, starting us off uh, very well, I think, on this week uh, of weeks, the second week of proper lockdown, uh, the second week uh, of parliamentary business if you like because parliamentary business resumes today uh, we're going to be talking hospitality coming up later on we're also going to be getting prime minister's questions later on this week but what we won't be getting uh, is that brand spanking new you know live television uh, event which would have been uh, the first media briefing white house style uh, by allegra stratton apparently that's all been put in the bin can't imagine why. 0344 499 1000. Don't forget, we are live streaming on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The start of another week. Who knows what the week has in store? Uh, what we do know and what we're hearing uh, is that the government may well try uh, and make the lockdown restrictions even tougher. I'm not quite sure uh, how much tougher they could get. Uh, but a lot of talk in the newspapers this morning, of course, about uh, behaviour and the way that people are trying uh, in some ways to get around the regulations rather than uh, uh, just following them. Let's talk to Dr Simon Clark, virologist at the University of Reading. Simon, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Interesting, a um, uh, few things to talk about this morning, really. I was looking at your uh, your Twitter feed, um, and I'll ask you about Neil Ferguson in a little while, but but interesting that uh, somebody's asked the question uh, whether Matt Hancock uh, saying targeted asymptomatic testing and subsequent isolation was highly effective in breaking chains of transmission. Um, there's, a, there's a big debate going on, isn't there, around some of the things that we talk about every day, uh, Simon, in terms of asymptomatic transmission. Um, you know, what What's your view on that? I mean, obviously, it's difficult, isn't it, to say to people, you might have it, um, even though you don't seem to have anything wrong with you. So why don't you get a test to see whether you do? Well, yeah, if it's done right. I mean, if if uh, people then uh, isolate themselves after they get a positive test and all the rest of it, then it could have an effect. 
Um, the effectiveness of the tests in Liverpool is often flagged as a success by the government, mm. but uh, their own scientists have said otherwise. And uh, Matt Hancock was challenged about this on the Andrew Marsh show yesterday. And uh, it was a rather unhelpful exchange where they, one was saying black and the other was saying white. Yeah. So uh, I need a bit more clarity on that one. But I don't think it's quite as straightforward as the government make out. No. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because now, as ever, um, you know, talk radio have been through the mill on all sorts of uh, things over the last few weeks. But in the in the end, I think it's important now to sort of focus in on certain particular types of questions and certain particular yeah. types of, of targets in a way, because it's all very well saying two million vaccinations a week are going to be achieved uh, by some time in the next week. That's fine. Um, but is there actually yeah. any logic to the people that they're vaccinating? For example, do you believe, as I do, that they should vaccinate teachers before they do perhaps, you know, the next phase uh, of phase two? Uh, yeah, I think there is going to be an argument that, that teachers come reasonably high up the list for, for being vaccinated. Uh, it needs to be remembered by people, though, that if you vaccinate teachers, that's not going to return kids to school because they're not out of school currently to protect the teachers. They're out of school to to uh, reduce interpersonal transmission uh, between between kids, basically. Right. So uh, while when when schools go back there, yeah, I think there's going to be an argument to uh, a justifiable argument to uh, immunise teachers. It's you know, schools aren't out for that reason at the right. moment. OK, interesting point, because in that case, uh, then perhaps um, what we need to do is look more um, at the, the targets for when we can start to lift some of the restrictions that we're currently living under. Because clearly, you know, there's now plenty of arguments to be made by people. There's one being made by a doctor in Canada now uh, that the lockdown is very, very dangerous for all sorts of reasons. Um, and while, yes, it may be necessary, um, we need to have a target as to when things can ease up a little bit so that people can, one, make a living, two, uh, not be driven insane by sitting in their house looking at the four walls every single day, uh, and three, actually getting back to some level of normality. Uh, yeah and the way to do that is to say we need x amount of people uh, immunized or we need certain groups immunized there's no point putting a time frame on it and then missing that time frame what's important is who you immunize and how many people you immunize not a an arbitrary uh, politicians optimism type date uh, that's not very helpful at all because if that's then missed people start to get very cross. Yes, I think that's true. And I suppose you could be, uh, you could argue that one of the problems that Boris Johnson has had in the past is that he's promised something uh, which he then couldn't actually deliver. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the government do that because they want to keep spirits up. But there are times when you have to level with people and say, look, it really is going to take this long. And I'm afraid we're just going to have to live with it. Mm. I mean, there is also um, an argument being made, as, as, as I said earlier by Neil Ferguson, uh, that he thinks that London might actually have achieved herd immunity by now because so many people have now got it uh, and have had it. Um, that, can, that can sort of, you know, putting that together with the number of vaccinations being done, um, that is something that could be possible, presumably. Uh, London and everywhere else will achieve herd immunity eventually. 
think it might be a bit too early for that yet. Uh, I haven't seen uh, seen his calculations or his, his reasoning behind that, so I wouldn't like to comment. But well, he gave, it, well he gave an interview later. at the weekend to the Sunday Times in which he said that. So, I mean, I haven't seen his calculations Yeah, either. sure. But just because he says it to the Sunday Times doesn't mean I have to agree with him. I'm not asking um, you. No, I'm asking you what you think of it. I'm not asking <laughs> you to agree with it. I'm just saying, what do you make of him saying it? I mean, this is the uh, same guy, basically, who's got everything else wrong. So he may have got this wrong. So he's got everything wrong. I, I, I you know, we'll, we'll uh, agree to disagree on that one, perhaps. But um, it, it will happen sooner or later. But I'm not sure that it's happened quite yet. Let me put it that way. Right. Well, then, when would it happen under the circumstances which we are currently living? Because we were told at the weekend on Friday, for example, uh, that some places in London, uh, one in 20 people hasn't been infected by it. I don't know what that means in terms of hospitalizations, but certainly one in 20 people, one in 30 people in other parts of London, you know, that's a quite a high level of infection. And so presumably at some point or other, you cross the Rubicon, don't you? Yeah, so let's say one in 20 is 5%. And let's say, let's be generous and say 15% of the population had it in the, the, the first wave or up to the second wave. So let's say 20, 25% of the population have had it. Mm. Uh, you need about 70% of the population to be immune, not to have the vaccine, to be immune uh, to get herd immunity. Right. So uh, we've still got a long way to go. Right. But so if, say, you take that view that 30% or so of people have got it uh, or have had it, uh, you then start immunising 20%, further 20%, you know, then you're getting quite mm -hmm. close to it, aren't you? I, I think in the summer months. Do you expect it to disappear in the spring? Um, in later spring, yes, I expect. I, I think I think there is going to be a, a seasonal effect to this, right. like we saw in the summer. And why so would I think that? Why would that spring, be? Uh, because more light, uh, more better ambient temperature, um, things dry out more quickly on surfaces, so the virus doesn't last as long if it gets deposited on, say, a door handle or something like that. So um, there are a number of factors, but uh, it's not unusual to see this. So, I mean, you would say that the fact that it's winter is actually a factor. Yes. Right. I mean, we've been expecting it all the way along. I've been telling people like your good self that, uh, that there would be a wave come the, the late autumn. It came perhaps a little bit earlier than I expected. Right. right. And as far as the, um, the targeting of... Um, the, the numbers that we're seeing, I mean, obviously, I, I'm, I'm always reticent slightly to say it looks as though there were fewer deaths yesterday than the day before because it is the weekend. I've never quite understood why, you know, the NHS and, and, and the statisticians don't work 24-7, but uh, you know, it was sort of 500-ish rather than 1,000. Um, at what point would you say we will be able to say with any kind of um, surety that this lockdown has reduced the number of deaths? Uh, in a couple of months' time, um, it will. It, we we need to get it on the, the the number of deaths on the downward trajectory, and that won't happen for probably about a month. I shouldn't think we'll start to see that until February. That's just a, a finger in the air guess, mm. because that's just how long it takes for people to go into hospital and to to deteriorate. To put it in a in rather stark yeah. terms. I read a piece in The Guardian uh, last week on Friday, I think it was, by they've got this sort of unnamed consultant who writes about what life is like on the wards. And he was mm -hmm. saying uh, that people are now in hospital for longer, but are more likely to survive because of the fact that they're getting treated sooner um, and we know more about the virus than we did sort of back in March and April. Is that what you understand as well? 
that is my understanding as well. Um, and it stands to reason, if you think about it, doctors and nurses know better how to assess people. They know better how to handle them. We've got drug treatments coming uh, online. We had another one uh, announced this past week or last week. Um, so uh, we will get, or doctors and nurses will get better at treating this all the time. So per hospitalization, I suspect we'll have fewer deaths this mm. time around. Right. And as far as the vaccine rollout goes, um, is there much difference in the... I know the third vaccine that was approved, I think, last week, we don't see probably for another couple of months. But in terms of the two that mm. we currently have, um, people are being contacted. There's there's mass vaccination centres opening up. Um, but at the moment, we're still dealing with the first four kind of tiers, as far as I know. Um, so people over 80, healthcare workers, that yeah. kind of thing. I mean, if I'm, I mean, so for example, I think I, I register bizarrely as about number eight, I think, um, which, which I'm quite pleased about, really. I don't want to really further up the chain than that. But I mean, in terms of ordinary people getting a vaccination, when should they be expecting that to happen? Uh, summer months. Um, myself, I don't think, you know, I, I'll be lucky to have it this year. There, there well, will you'll be, be below me. You look a lot on. better. You look a lot fitter than I do. <laughs> <laughs> there, there will be there will be vaccinations going on well into 2022. Right. And Matt Hancock said yesterday that all the all that the entire adult population will eventually be vaccinated. Uh, I suspect that that will be going on late into this year, right. and of course that will mean second jabs into next year. Right. But of course we don't know how long. Even if somebody has the vaccine today, the immunity is going to last for that, and they may end up having to have a. a booster uh, in the spring of next year. Yeah, I mean, there's still an awful lot we don't know, isn't there? We don't know, for example, if, right. you, if you had the disease. I mean, I talk to people every, every day, Sam, as I'm sure you do. And I say, yeah. to, and I say to them, do you think you had it? And, well, yeah, I think I had it. They're never, re- they're not really sure, but they talk about various symptoms that they had. I don't know, it could be like eight months ago, and they weren't, weren't feeling yeah. terribly well. I mean, what could people like that do to ensure or to try and work out if they actually did have it? Because I'm told if you have a, an antibody test. Um, actually, if it was long ago, it might not show up anyway. That's right. Um, you could have an antibody test. Uh, if it comes back positive, then that's a pretty sure sign you've seen it. But if mm. it comes back negative, then uh, possibly not. Right. Um, my own mother is adamant she had it before Christmas, which I've told her I really don't think is uh, right. uh, Christmas. Not, not the one just gone. The one oh, the before, one before that, yes. a year ago. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there are tons of respiratory tract viruses that go around in the winter. That's just what they do. And they were circulating 12 months ago as well. It wasn't just the coronavirus. So people who had a nasty bout of, uh, of a chest infection 12 months ago shouldn't, always, shouldn't automatically assume that it was, uh, it was coronavirus because no. it almost certainly wasn't. OK. Dr. Simon Clark, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Virologist at the University of Reading. We've still got a long way to go by the sounds of things, uh, by the sounds of what he's saying. It'll be another month before we know whether or not this lockdown is actually working. Well, let's hope it is working because for an awful lot of people, it is driving them insane. My kids, for example, uh, and I'm sure lots of other people's children are sort of beside themselves. Um, I know that you'll say, well, it's not that hard to do, but it is hard to do. It's really hard to do for kids, teenagers who are used to being out with their friends, who are used to seeing people, who are used to mixing with each other, who are used to going to school with each other. And now they're asked to sit in their rooms, if they even have a room, uh, and work on a computer all day. It's really tough. And I want people to know that. And I want people to understand that one of the reasons I question whether the, uh, the lockdown is necessary in the same way as it is, is because I need to know the answer to that. And it's quite hard to get the answer to that. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.
Time to say a very good morning to Mr. Peter Hitchens. This is the second week of the uh, of the month so far, the second week of lockdown, I suppose. Peter, very good morning to you. Good morning to you. And thank you very much indeed for mentioning us yesterday in your column. I think that gave us a bit more of a far and wide uh, audience than we already have. And so, uh, as you've often said, important for the likes of us to stick together uh, in these difficult times. But there's been some weird stuff going on, hasn't there? Very strange indeed. Uh, not merely does it seem to me to be the atmosphere has darkened considerably, mm. but a good deal more intolerance and suggestions that people such as me are somehow, I've been accused, for instance, of, of uh, stirring up hatred against NHS workers, right. a, a rather unlikely thing for me to do. Uh, my late aunt, uh, for instance, was was an NHS worker um, all, all her life, yeah. sister tutor and a very distinguished nurse. The idea that I would stir up hatred against NHS workers is repellent. Right. And uh, also, I mean, you've, you know, and also by the way, you haven't, having, you haven't done it, Peter. Accused of having blood on my hands because somehow or other arguments that I've made are alleged to have caused death. Uh, and then this very strange thing has been happening with the uh, with Twitter followers. Uh, those who aren't familiar with this, if you are on Twitter, you have a, a number of people who, who follow you and or, or don't, as the case may be, and this number is displayed. And it's it's a sort of sign of how uh, of how interested people are in what you say, and over the past few days, particularly just before the weekend, uh, my number of followers began to fall. And when I mentioned this in public, I found a number of other people, also generally uh, towards the dissenting end of the argument on the on, on the great uh, the great virus debate, uh, were having the same experience. And then I when I advertised, people who had been following me. Uh, contacted me to say, well, yes, I had been, but I, I looked today and I found that my that I that I unfollowed you. Now people are completely free to do so, of course they are, but they had not done it themselves. Mm. They hadn't done it themselves. Then who on earth has the power uh, to do it? And on what basis are they exercising it? The idea put forward that somehow some sort of clean up of old dead accounts just doesn't seem to fit in with the facts that I know. I just feel that there's a there's a there's a rapid narrowing. The other point about the no, I think the government intervened on the side of talk radio when it turned out that YouTube had taken down yeah. a large amounts of your stuff, and quite rightly, the, uh, the, that was reinstated. But yeah. in the absence of, of, of that, I, of, 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 of an acquaintance of mine in Oxford, out of the kindness of his heart, or Jonathan Mayhew Price, put up uh, on YouTube uh, a, a recording of this conversation last week. Mm. And after 24 hours, it was taken down. Yeah. For, supposedly violating community standards. He then put it up on Vimeo, and the same thing happened. Mm. Uh, so I don't have the the, 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 the personal protection which um, which talk radio has obtained through the government. And so they continue to do it if they can get away with it. And I, people say, oh, it's just a private company. It's not censorship. Well, I have to tell, tell you that's a distinction without difference to me. If, uh, if an independent view is, is, is prevented from reaching people, that is censorship, whoever does it. And I tire of this excuse-making that people come up with. We are in, a, in an era, first of all, of menace to dissent, and secondly, of actual censorship. Uh, growing and uncontrolled, and in many cases quite popular. Yes. Well, this is what's interesting as well, because one, it's very difficult to uh, find out why a particular conversation has somehow breached the so-called community guidelines, because it's not very clear what they are. Um, mm. But when you do read what they are, it's also very clear that what you and I have ever talked about has never breached those guidelines. Um, it's also very strange to me um, that there seems to be this kind of um, uh, new, as you say, slightly more sinister view abroad 
record that not only do they not wish for us to be talking about stuff, but they then start to go on the attack um, about things like you've just said, that, you know, you're somehow causing damage to, to people. You're somehow uh, having blood on your hands because of an opinion. It's absolutely preposterous and, and as you say, um, quite dangerous now. Well, it's very dangerous because uh, people listen to it and are in some cases convinced by it. And as in so many other cases, and you say, if, if someone, say, for, for, um, for very private reasons, uh, doesn't wish to wear a mask in a supermarket, uh, then there is a great danger now, I think, that they might be upbraided by some customer who will come to them and say, look, look at this advertisement here. The government says that you're causing people to die. Uh, and you can imagine knots of people forming and, and very unpleasant scenes uh, following. And this is just the danger of this sort of thing. If you, if you, the, the government has, has, has conjured out of the ground like an amateur sorcerer, this immense monster of fear, uh, which it, it will find very hard to get rid of. People are, and this is, they're absolutely sincere about this. And I, I actually sympathize with them hugely. I, I'm fortunate in, in both my education and my experience. I, I'm quite hard to influence. But other people believe very much what they're told by authority. Mm. And for, it's reasonable for them to assume that, that, that it's justified. And very large numbers of people are genuinely terribly afraid of, what, of, of, of this virus mm. in a way which verges on superstition and is completely impervious to any kind of reasoning if you, if you ever try to do so, which I have once or twice tried to do. <laughs> and it's been, I, I'm, I love arguing. Well, it's been obvious to me from very, very early on. There's, there's, there's no point here because it's, it's, not a, it's not a reasoned position. It's come mm. out of fear. And the origin of that fear has been, has been the government fanning that fear. And, and, and that is the shocking thing. Yeah. The other thing we have to worry about here is this. The, the whole argument which we ought to be having about whether this shutdown of the economy and society actually works is not being had. So the, 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 even if it is working, which I, I frankly contest, uh, there's no evidence for it, even if it is working, whether it, it's justified under any uh, sensible cost-benefit analysis, is also not being had. The only argument that's being had is over whether people should be really, really frightened and over whether people like you and me should shut up. Mm. And that's been the great change over the, probably over the past couple of weeks. Yes. Uh, we used to be able to say, oh, hang on a minute, is this justified? Mm. And I can say, it's like, as I often do, it's, it's, it's like burning down your house to get rid of a wasp nest because there was still an argument about whether the action was justified. That's all gone now. Mm. Now, the only argument is whether, is, is whether you and I are entitled to speak and whether we should be shut right. up. But also, have I, you not... Also, have something, you also... something else in here as well, because I'm fascinated mm. by it. Um, I, I have never been a supporter of, the, of Donald Trump or a sympathiser of him in any ways, but, but the, a lot of the attack now on the supposed... Um, uh, the, the supposed um, right wing, of which I, I imagine I'm part of, is based on the, the appalling behaviour of Trump supporters in, in the Capitol building last week. Now, here's an interesting thing: two of the most as if, yeah, as if the two things are related, it, it, right? Yeah, two of the there were two of the most prominent figures in this country who have been arguing strongly for shutting down uh, the economy in, at the beginning of the Trump era were, were were very strong supporters of him and were, were prepared to be seen with him and, and make a lot of them. And those two, and I'll say them here, is Michael Gove, uh, the cabinet minister who I think has been arguing most fervently for shutdown, and Piers Morgan, uh, who, uh, who, 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 who is the monarch of, of Good Morning Britain. And th their associations with Donald Trump, whatever they may say about him now, seem to me to show an absence of judgment. Mm. If we're going to be attacked as a kind of collateral damage for the revolting behaviour of, of, of people, 
people storming of the Capitol building, then shouldn't people also be saying, here, you know, hang on, these prominent supporters of lockdown uh, were themselves uh, strongly associated with a very, very serious political misjudgment. Not all that long ago. Should we be taking their judgment seriously now? Mm. Well, that's a very good point. Funnily enough, I had Piers Morgan in the studio here just before the end of last year when his book came out. Uh, and I asked him about his relationship with Donald Trump because I was under the impression that they'd fallen out uh, since Trump did that terrible thing, which all uh, monarchs now do, unfollow people on Twitter right, or block them. Um, and he said, actually, you know, we had a, an exchange just the other day and everything's fine. So as recently as about a month ago, um, he was on pretty good terms with the president of the United States, who he, he now calls a kind of psychopath. But what about Dr. Ari Joff? Um, because, Peter, you've probably seen, you will have seen this over the course of the weekend. A, a very esteemed paediatrician uh, up in uh, Canada, in Edmonton, uh, works at the Stollery Children's Hospital. He's also a clinical professor in the Department of Paediatrics at the University of Alberta. He said uh, that there has been no cost-benefit analysis done on lockdowns, but he is now more convinced than ever uh, that the damage that they cause uh, far and away outweighs um, the good prevention that, that, it, that, that, that results. No, it's Harry Joff's piece in the Toronto Sun is an astonishing thing, not least because uh, he, he he says at the beginning that he was a supporter of lockdown. Yeah. He was now absolutely not. And I guess it's an exercise of, of, of reason and of common sense, but also of considerable knowledge. This man is a pediatrician. Yeah. Uh, he's, he, no one can, can, can accuse him of, 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 of trying to uh, stir up hatred against health workers. No, that absolutely not. But, but, and there it is. It's, it's a, quite a major uh, news development. But will you see it? Because all the news turns in one direction. I, I, I don't actually think that, uh, that the fact that the, uh, the death figures for COVID fell by about half yesterday means very much in terms of a, of a statistical change. But if they doubled instead of fallen by half, then, uh, then I absolutely assure you that an awful lot of fuss would have been made about it. Whereas I don't think I saw anywhere. Uh, that there had been a substantial fall in deaths yesterday being being made much of at all. It's, this is the way in which things are done. I, 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 I would not be as unscrupulous as my opponents in, in, in this matter, but mm. everything which tends towards the, the, the idea of panic and fear is publicised and made a great deal of, and anything which doesn't is largely ignored and doesn't make it mm. onto, onto much of the mainstream media. And the, the great the island of, uh, of, of open discussion which exists on, on talk radio is incredibly welcome, but it is an island. Yes. And it is a very much more um, denuded island, if you like, because all weekend I was under attack from various points. Some of whom, some of the people attacking me were private individuals. Some of them were teachers. Some of them were uh, people from the left, obviously, basically accusing Talk Radio of spreading misinformation, which we don't do, uh, accusing us of being uh, COVID deniers, which we are not, accusing us of telling people not to social distance, which we have never done, accusing us of not wearing masks, which is also untrue. I have to wear a mask to come into this building i have to wear a mask to get into the lift in this building i have to wear a mask when i go into a shop which is what i do uh, we don't encourage people to break the rules we simply ask questions but what you get now peter i asked a, a doctor a virologist this morning um when will we know what the results of this lockdown are when will we know when the target has been met and he said well probably not for at least a month now, my understanding of the figure going down yesterday is partly because it's a Sunday and for some bizarre reason, um, the NHS and the statisticians don't seem to work very much at the weekend. So they don't count things in the same way. So I would imagine it'll probably back up. But I mean, if you're in a massive lockdown where you can't do anything and a thousand people a day are dying, it would suggest to me um, not that it could be worse, but, you know, but, it, but it's actually not really working. 
Well, maybe. I, who, who can tell? If one thing happens after another, it doesn't mean it's caused by it anyway. No. But it's interesting he should use the term month because it's been my contention since uh, since, since uh, Carl Hennigan came up with the, the actual figures of deaths on the dates as they happened. And we, we learned that the deaths had peaked on April the 12th mm. in, the, in, 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 the, in, the, in the spring outbreak, uh, that the fall uh, could not conceivably have been caused by Boris Johnson's shutdown of the country announced on March the 23rd, because it simply wasn't time for it to, to be so. I, I, I think generally it would be reasonable to say that the, the, the length of time between infection and death is going to be something in the region of four weeks a month. There will obviously be occasions where it be where it be less, and that appears to be the way the evidence points. So I think it's very, very difficult to tell whether this is working, but I can absolutely guarantee to you that if, if, uh, if, if the positives rate falls, and if the death rate falls, and if the hospital occupancy falls, these things will be attributed to the, to, to the shutdown yeah. without further discussion. And anybody who suggests that there is actually no necessary connection between the two will be bulldozed to one side. And then comes the inquiry. Uh, the inquiry at which it is quite possible that you and I will be called, not so much as witnesses, but as people to be blamed. Mm. Uh, the inquiry which will, I very much fear, uh, conclude that the only failing of the government was not to shut the country down sooner. Meanwhile, the, the little it dribbles in. Heathrow Airport is practically dead. Uh, the, the, the airline industry has almost ceased to exist. Mm. Small businesses are, are dying all around us. Large businesses are suffering. People's true fate is being concealed from them by the, the, the payment of furlough payments, which is, is being done with fairy gold, for which we will pay for decades. Uh, at a very high rate, and nobody is even paying any attention to the extraordinarily large downside. This morning on Radio Force Today, I an extremely moving and disturbing interview with a woman who'd been diagnosed with cancer and been trying to get treatment for it, uh, which, of course, is incredibly important that it's done quickly. In this, uh, this was a case of bowel cancer. And delay at every turn. And this is alarmingly common. And, and, and how can this conceivably be are justified by people who claim their principal concern is for life. This is not life versus money. It's life versus life. Yeah. Is it justified? That, that whole, whole discussion is being shoveled to one side by the attack on skepticism, which also makes it far freer for the government and for the police to make individual lives more oppressive and more narrow and more limited. Mm. Uh, the, it's a complete, the two things march in step. If there's no dissent, uh, the government and the police have more power over what we do. And the whole, the whole principle of English life, that everything was legal unless it was specifically banned by a law made by a free parliament, has been thrown in the bin and, and it is gone. And now, and now our freedom is doled out in small spoonfuls by the government if it feels like giving, them, yeah. giving it. And you, hear, and you hear more and more people uh, having conversations, Peter, about what we're allowed to do. You know, can I go to this place? Can I go to that place? Can I drive the car for, you know, five minutes in that direction? Or is that too far? You know, it's extraordinary. Very McCarthy-esque, as you pointed out in your column. And this ridiculous advert with Chris Whitty, like the kind of, you know, Grim Reaper sitting there telling everybody to stay at home. Well, you know, people don't want to stay at home. And it's not that they can't go out. It's that they're worried about going out more than once a day. We're hearing today that they might say to people, you can only go out once a week, for God's sake. Well, I, the, the, if they do that, then the danger to public health will be astonishing. Mm. I, the, people, the, 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 the essential nature of exercise in keeping people healthy 
particularly at times like these, is so extraordinarily uh, important. Mm. And if the government actually legislates to prevent people from going out of their homes more than once a week, it will be doing appalling damage to the long-term health, particularly of those uh, at my time of life. But anybody, if you don't have an established exercise pattern, uh, then you are you you're causing yourself grave health risks for the rest of your life. And if people are simply banned from going outside at all, that will do, I, I guarantee, and I say without fear of contradiction by anybody, that will do grave damage mm. to the National Health and also to the National Health Service, which will then have to treat all the heart complaints and, and indeed mental complaints, which will result from it. It is a crazy proposal. Uh, I, I seem to remember Matt Hancock making it before, proposing to ban people from going outside and being laughed out of court, pretty much. But in the atmosphere we have now, of course, uh, where the, there's only one point of view, maybe he won't be laughed out mm. of court. And, and, and maybe it will happen. Yeah. This is why opposition is so important. No country without an opposition can be governed well, because nobody is right all the time. Everything has to be questioned. You won't, you, you'll ne even if the policy is right, it will be better implemented. Of course. If opposition heard and respected. Yes. I mean, it's like that scene, I don't know if you remember the Donald Sutherland movie, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where people right, start yeah, watching watch each other, you know, uh, and sort of you know, screaming in this very bad way. I mean, things have got so bad, I actually made beetroot soup last night. I'm going to go home and eat it today uh, and <laughs> consider myself to be sort of in my own gulag of my own making. <laughs> Back to the bush. Yes, exactly right. Peter, great to talk to you. Thank you very much Bye. indeed. Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday columnist. We'll see him again at uh, same time next week. Good morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, time to say a very good afternoon and a very happy new year to Cyrus Todiwala. Cyrus, welcome. Welcome, Zaho. Oh, sorry. <laughs> happy new year. Good afternoon, Mike. Thank you Love very much indeed for, for, for joining us. Um, I, I imagine that uh, uh, Christmas and New Year for you guys is normally a bit busier than it was this year, but uh, how are you keeping? <laughs> Christmas and New Year this year we felt that we actually were quite lost, actually, because we had nothing to do. Right. We couldn't do anything compared to the hub hub and the buzz buzz that we have all the time. Right. I know it's a shocking state of affairs, isn't it? I mean, you're um, a regular guest on this show. You told us before that you're looking for new premises. Is that still going ahead? Are you still moving? That is very much still going ahead, sir. We are moving. We'll be moving very shortly. And then hopefully... We open by spring if everything goes to plan. Yes. I mean, one of the things that we're going to talk about today is this idea that maybe there should be a Minister for Hospitality. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, but, of course, the trouble is, um, and I keep saying this to, 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 to empty vessels, what we really need is a plan here. We need to you know, Guys like yourself need to have an idea of when we reach the point, whether it's vaccinations or whether it's infections, where you can reopen. Well, that has been the greatest challenge for everybody within the hospitality sector. Mm. But then the hospitality sector has all its support mechanisms that are suffering equally. So all our suppliers, our producers, our farmers, everyone's in a dilemma. Right. But uh, the main thing is certain times there's been a certain lack of or a hesitation in uh, giving the right kind of information at the right time, which has put the whole industry in a bit of a quandary. Yes. And I think... Uh, we would very much welcome a finale or where you can, what you can do, how much you can do, because there are lots of uh, holes in between the decisions that are made sometimes. Yes. And what about the uh, idea of, uh, of a hospitality sort of minister as such? Where did that come from? I think it, it needs, I mean, I have to say, I am sorry I did not bring up this topic earlier because the woman who started it, Claire Bossy from yes. the Chef magazine. Right. She did a remarkable job and we were both chatting and I said, you know, all these years coming from 
a country like India that also largely depends on global tourism. Why don't we have somebody here that purely dedicates themselves to a senior role in hospitality? The industry is worth one nearly 150 billion pounds to the exchequer. Mm. 150 billion pounds is a significant sum of money for recognition to have a minister that understands what the issues within the industry are and how it can be tackled. So uh, uh, rather than at this stage, we had all these stopgap kind of decisions. Mm. In future, have somebody who supports the industry, understands the mechanisms within, within which it works, and then have a decision-making platform that benefits the entire sector. Yes, because certainly I've spoken to many um, uh, big and small uh, individuals who own either small pubs or maybe small restaurants, people like yourself, Cyrus, people that own nightclubs and that kind of thing. And one of the things that they've found very difficult over the past year is just the uncertainty. You know, back when uh, everything reopened again in July, nobody really knew how long it was going to be for. You didn't know whether you could renew your lease, perhaps, or uh, hire more people, knowing that maybe in a month's time you'd be shut down again. I mean, it's been really, really difficult, hasn't it? It's been, un I mean, unrealistically difficult because the hotel sector, which is massive, it was growing at an alarming, a very beautiful pace yeah. as a standstill. And it's everything that goes with it. So we have two restaurants within two Hilton hotels, as you know. Mm. And the hotels have been closed since March. Right. They tried to open it in November. Just as we were ready to reopen the restaurants, bang came the next lockdown. And then came the other lockdown in from January. So, yes, it, the important thing is that nobody knows. And I think it's nice that people did know. And we have this issue with the pub owners because are they critically inclined to infect people or the restaurants actually actually cause people to be infected where we don't think we do? No. We have so many systems in place. But this, so, is, this is the thing. And, and you know, as far as your um, hopes this afternoon are concerned, if the debate goes ahead... Um, you know, what would you like to say to the government? Because like Rishi Sunak, for example, um, um, who has been, you know, helpful in many ways because he's managed yes. to find money uh, for, so that you can furlough your employees and stuff like that. But what he hasn't been able to do um, is somehow keep a grip of the government's policies. He hasn't been able to convince them that, you know, let's look at the science. Let's find out if there isn't much risk of, of the, the disease spreading in a restaurant, then let it open. I think the minister, if a, min a good minister is elected or a senior minister is elected, they would have a group of people that would advise them from the various parts of the hospitality sector. As a result, he would get loads of information pouring in. Personally, I feel the biggest drawback we have in Britain is that the hospitality sector lacks the profile. Our education department suffers within hospitality. I think the minister has to start from the root level. Mm. How can we encourage young British students to look at hospitality as a first choice career and where and how they can grow and flourish within that? So I think there's a whole series of things that come into play right from education, how much finance can be dedicated towards hospitality education and what the industry really needs in terms of support and help and understanding. Because if you cripple the industry, the entire farming community suffers. Mm. And it's not just that, it's the hospital catering, it's the other events catering, it's the, uh, it's the university catering. All of that has ground to a standstill. So it's a huge sector, second, third largest employer in the UK. So it, it, it has certain amount of weight behind it.
So I do hope that the person there, because right now we are divided between DCMS, the culture, media and sport and DEFRA and, and other departments. So the government does think that they have a minister that is dedicated to hospitality, but it's fragmented. It comes in three or four different categories. What we would like is one person who supersedes or oversees all these different activities and has a group of intelligent people that advises government rightly. Yes. And as far as your hopes are concerned, I mean, we're told we should have uh, at least the top four tiers of people vaccinated by perhaps mid-February to late February. I mean, would you be pushing for um, them to give you some kind of roadmap, if you like, as to when you might be able to start thinking about reopening? Oh, we would love that, wouldn't we? Yeah. We would, at the moment, there is no uncertainty at all because we don't know whether we are we can reopen in spring and what that spring means, whether it leads into summer, whether we can open in April or March or May further down. So I do hope that just the very fact that there is a vaccination now and not one but two and three different vaccinations, that it actually inculcates a feeling of excitement in the public and gives them hope, mentally at least, so that we have this uh, coming through rolling out process and yes. then people start to feel confident that they can go out again, they can do things normally and have a you know normal lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. Because I was going to ask you, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult enough for you as the owner because you don't get any kind of uh, compensation for shutting your restaurant. But how are your staff feeling? I mean, how are they getting along? What are they doing with themselves while this is all going I, on? Uh, across the industry, what we had was... Uh, you know, the service charge factor, which Mr. Sunak did not incorporate into the salary structure. Mm. Whilst everybody pays a minimum wage, the service charge actually helps to... It's taxed at source, so they are taxed. Mm. It's not that it's not a tax source, but that has dropped the income of several people across the country. Mm. And those that get 80%, which is less service charge, and only on their basic salary, find themselves even more marginalized. And I think uh, our people, yes, we keep bringing them in bits and pieces because of the takeaway business and whatever. But I think a great many people have just been laid off. The last figure that we heard was over se nearly 700,000. Hmm. And they expect that by the time this period is over and when the furlough comes to an end, it may creep up into the millions. Yeah. So the industry employs nearly 5 million people. Right. And that's the thing. I mean, if the restaurant business fails, you know, there's going to be millions, as you say, people out, out of work and there's no way that they're going to get another job anywhere. Well, if the industry is uh, significantly reduced, then there is going to be a lot of problems finding jobs for the people that are there. Mm. And uh, already there are lots of, if you just look at all the various sites for jobs, there are hundreds of applications already for one job mm. and it's already started. And it's going to have a very significant impact, very significant impact because restaurants will also and hotels will also uh, whittle down their manpower because they don't know, there's no certainty about if the business will resume yeah. to a normal level. So you will always start on a low level and then they will depend on casual labor hired from different companies to subsist for the time being. Mm. People feel confident enough to start employing people full time. Yes. So it's all these things that are not uh, clear in our minds that prevents us from taking big steps forward. Of course. 
Because we were hearing on the news just now that I think uh, Heathrow traffic in December down 89%, um, which means that people are simply not coming here. And you worry that because of the way that everyone's doing what we're doing right now, talking on, on a Zoom call, that people yeah. will just won't travel as much. No, there's too much fear. And then, uh, I mean, all over the world, I get, we get people telling us from everywhere, our friends and relatives all over the world, how are you people coping? Because all they hear is bad news mm. about they hear nothing positive coming out of Britain. Yeah. So in, in the world out there, the fear is actually much greater than in here where we actually know what the situation is. And Heathrow traffic dropping down has caused the hotels not to reopen. And so many businesses have just locked up and are waiting. Mm. I know. Shocking. Have you been able to keep the takeaway business going, Cyrus, during this it, latest it is, lockdown? It is not a significant part of our business, uh, Mike, but our chill boxes are doing quite well. Okay. We are able to deliver nationwide now and we have menus on the website that the chill boxes can be sent overnight. And I think that is one part of the business that we would love to concentrate on more right. and offer a better choice to people so that they don't get bored with just one or two menus, but they have a little bit more of a significant choice coming mm. through. Okay, that's good. Well, so how do people find those? Give yourself a free plug. We've had amazing reviews. If you log on to mrtodiwala.com and check out the comments, we have fabulous comments. And we've sold quite a few boxes, so now we will start to market it. Yes. Good. Excellent stuff. Well, listen, Cyrus, I will order one soon, I'm sure, uh, as soon as I can get around to it. Cyrus Tonywala, uh, chef and owner of Cafe Spice in London, uh, talking about why it's so important that the hospitality business is not only getting back to normal, but is represented properly uh, because £150 billion to the Exchequer is what the Exchequer is currently not getting simply and purely because they're not able to make any money, which is crazy, is it not? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB, online, or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.